Our gracious God, would you come now as you have been here and allowed us to be in your presence as we have celebrated what Christ has done to give his life for us, as we have celebrated Joseph and Mary and all of the circumstances that brought about the birth of our coming king, our future bridegroom, the one who has loved us and called us to himself and now made it possible that we could come by his death and sacrifice. As we have, as your people, as your people have sung back to you and rejoiced with you, so now, would you come and speak? Would you speak here, Lord, for our comfort and for our help, for our healing, for our conviction? Would you come now and be a balm? Would you come now and also wound? Would you come now to do your mighty work, to draw us near in every way that you are tenderly, righteously, perfectly, sovereignly willing to do as you have us here this day? I am not enough, but Lord Jesus Christ, you are enough. We are not enough, but you, Lord Jesus, are absolutely enough for everything that we need. So meet us now and be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to talk about the greatness of Christ and the promises that he brings to his people as seen through an ancient psalm. Psalm 45 was written by the sons of Korah. Inspired by the Spirit of God, it was to be a tribute and a celebration of the wedding of the Davidic king. It was probably written for one of the specific sons of David on the throne for a royal wedding at some point, maybe after his life. But it was also written with a view to the forever son of David, who was to be king. And his wedding with his people. We'll see at the end of verse 2 that it says, God has blessed you forever, speaking of the king. We'll see in verse 6 where it says, your throne is forever. You see, these words found in Psalm 45, these were the promises that were given to David, found in 2 Samuel 7, that he would have a son who would sit on the throne and who would reign forever. So we know that the words of this psalm go beyond any glorious wedding expression of even a a royal wedding of a king. But they point to the eternal son, the son of God himself, the Lord Jesus, and his wedding with his people. When he came to earth, he came as a baby. That was the beginning of the fulfillment of this passage we'll read today. Just the beginning of his fulfillment of reigning as king. Some of him being a king was seen while he was here. He ruled over the wind and the waves. He reigned over demons and sickness and disease and death. He knew men's hearts. He was worshipped for his holiness. And yet at the same time, some of his kingliness was also veiled. He veiled it and he came in such a way that it would be hidden so that he might be despised and rejected of men so that he could suffer death for the sake of those that he would win to himself and make his own so that he could sacrifice himself to death on a cross and make payment for the sins of all those who would believe in him. So as we come to this psalm this morning, we know that we're talking ultimately about Jesus. That's why I spend a moment to connect the dots, because the original writers themselves gave hints 
in the very words that they wrote that went beyond just the earthly king and the royal wedding that's described here. Jewish teaching, in fact, for centuries before Christ took this psalm to speak of the coming of the Messiah, and they were just waiting for him to come. And now he has. The New Testament, in fact, echoes so many of the themes here in connection to Jesus himself. So let's revel in this ancient text this morning from roughly a millennium before the Christ child. And let's celebrate who this baby is to us. Psalm 45, um, let's begin. I want to read the opening nine verses as we start. The psalmist writes, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You, speaking to the king, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of uprightness, the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory places, palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Pause there. As a blessing over the king and his bride in its day, on their wedding day, these, these words are a gracious hope. They're, they're an optimistic desire. Arguably, they may be just a little bit too big for every, any human man and woman, even a king and a queen. But these words as a prophecy and a promise and a picture of the coming Messiah... These words are actually not too big, but if anything, maybe just a bit too small because, because these are just the beginning of what will be the full reality of the king who came to win a people. First, let's see what we learn about the Lord Jesus. First, in our passage, we learn that the Lord Jesus is the king of grace. He is the king of grace. Verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, the psalmist writes. Christ came forth from the Father, John tells us, full of grace and truth. One of the specific ways that the grace of God was evident in Christ was in his words. Surely everything that Christ did echoed grace and truth. Everything that Christ did was a manifestation of God's blessing on his life, the way he taught, the way he questioned both his enemies and those tender, wounded ones who thought they weren't worthy, the way he healed, the way he loved, even how he raged at corruption. The blessedness of Christ was evident in all of those things. But we have specific focus this morning, and we can read the record of how he spoke and how grace was poured upon his lips. Peter told him at a crisis moment, a crossroads moment in his earthly ministry, when Jesus said to him that the people, having been offended, were leaving, and he asked to his followers, will you also go away? 
And Peter said, Lord, where will we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Because grace was upon his lips. Luke chapter 4 says that all the people were speaking well of him. And they were wondering at the words of grace that were falling from his lips. As he went from town to town and dusty roads and hillsides and taught. In the Gospel of John, we find that even Christ's enemies couldn't help but admit, never has a man spoken as this man speaks. We, we went to arrest him just like you told us, but then he started talking, and I don't know. We froze in our tracks, and we didn't know what to do. Because grace was poured upon his lips. Uh, we could multiply other examples, but we get the point. The Lord Jesus really teaches us the meaning of grace, doesn't he? Because he embodies it. First by his words, of course, which define and explain all that he was and came to do, but also by his very actions, by who he was, because he, God himself, left the high and exalted place that he had, surrounded by the worship of angels, to come and be born as a man, as a baby, and then to suffer as a criminal and to die cruelly. Why? Because we deserved it. No. Because God chose. Because God was willing. Because Christ wanted to redeem. All of it, his merit, not ours. All of it based on his desire, not our worth. All entirely of grace. The Lord Jesus came not to make us more impressed with ourselves. He came to save men from their sin. He is the king of grace. And it is God's grace through Christ that makes it possible for us to know him. And that's why we celebrate this, baby. You will never be enough. But you don't have to be enough. Because Christ is enough. Believe him. The Lord Jesus is the king of grace we see in our passage. Second, this morning we learn that the Lord Jesus also will be the victorious king. Not only is he the king of grace, but he is the victorious king. Verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Notice verse that the king is arrayed for victory. He has a sword, he has arrows, and he rides on a charger. His enemies fall before him and beneath him. The ancient king in the nation of Israel was called to silence the wickedness in the land. We'll see that a couple verses later in verse 7 again as well. The job, biblically of a king. And the job, biblically, of rulers and government today is really fairly simple to summarize. It is to promote the good, to punish the evil, and to preserve peace. That's it. Promote the good, punish the evil, and preserve peace. Christ told us that he would secure all of those things one day in their fullness at his second coming. The picture here of a sword and arrows and treading down enemies, I don't know, it may not sound too Christian to us. But 
it is very Christian as far as Jesus himself defines it. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 13, the very words of the Lord Jesus himself. You don't have to go there, but you can jot down Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, where Christ says, The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of all of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What are those stumbling blocks? Who are those of lawlessness? Me. It's absolutely what I deserve. But for the grace of Christ, I am due his judgment. I had a prof in seminary who said, um, you realize, of course, that the Lord Jesus could send us to hell and charge us rent for it. Very true. Elsewhere, Christ says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. This is very much the role of the Messiah that he would and will fulfill one day. He is the victorious king and he will utterly conquer every wickedness and every enemy. But in his first coming to earth, he came at great cost to himself to win for himself a bride. In fact, ironically, to win a bride out of a world of rebels and treacherous people and bring them to himself. For there is no one who is naturally fit for God. Though we were made for him, sin has come into the world and every man, woman, and child has known it. And so he has had to come and redeem and rescue and win and wash. And that's what he came to do. He came to win a bride and take her, even from among his enemies, and make them his own. He defeats enemies by making them children of faith. That's the greatest victory, isn't it? Men and women flee to him for his grace. When Jesus walked the earth, the arrows that are in the heart of the king's enemies that I would read here in verse 5, I think are very fittingly, quite often the words of Christ that pierce the hearts of those who are lost and confused and outsiders, those who were rebels and thought they were smarter. Just read through the Gospels and see the many times that people came to try and challenge him. And we who know the Gospels and have kind of read the end and know how it ends, we laugh as we think, seriously? You're going to come and, and do a duel of words with the God of the universe? This ought to be rich. And every time he makes fools of those who come against him, but he does it in such a way that he tenderly exposes their heart to demonstrate to them, I wound so that I can heal because the victory that I seek is you. His first coming was a victory of changed hearts. And he is still building that kingdom and winning that victory and changing hearts today. One day he will come back in great power. It's beautiful to see 
even in the Gospels themselves. Hearts changed. Arrows lodged into souls now pierced. Even the centurion whose job it was to oversee the death of Christ and make sure that it was accomplished fully stood there as Jesus breathed his last and he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Many would-be enemies since have taken him for a savior. The victorious king. Notice here, by the way, this victorious king, what is he fighting for? Well, there it is right in the middle of verse 4. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, or truth, humility, and righteousness, as it also can be translated. These, by the way, are pretty much the opposite of what the kings of this world traffic in, aren't they? These are the opposite of self-interest and pride and political expediency. How much did the rulers of the ancient world operate in that way? Well, in Christ's day, we know that what ruled the day was the Pax Romana, a so-called peace that stood because of the threat of the sword of Rome. It was a peace, but a peace only by force. It was a peace, but ultimately it was a farce for what true peace would be meant to be. Christ, on the other hand, came to conquer in a different way, didn't he? Christ came to conquer by sacrifice so that, yes, God could judge sin and uphold truth and reign in righteousness, and yet at the exact same time, he could still openly welcome returning sinners. He came to conquer in a far more difficult, infinitely more complicated way so that he could conquer hearts and still be just, so that he could see to it that he did not have to lower his standards as the perfect, eternal, righteous God, and yet could still bring sinners to his own side. The victorious king. He came to win a victory for truth, humility, and righteousness. What do you think? Would we not love for rulers of today to be marked by truth and humility and righteousness? Who wants to laugh with me, right? But Christ came in truth, whether men or women were willing to hear it or not. Christ came humbled as a baby, whether people were willing to respond to it or not. Christ came in righteousness so that even those who wanted to deviously put him to death had to actually bring forward false witnesses because they couldn't find anything wrong with him in the perfect life that he lived. He will reign. He is king. The only question is if we will come to him now before it's too late. You're not enough. But the victorious king, he is absolutely enough. And he has come to win you. Walk with him. Third, we see that the Lord Jesus is the king of grace and that he is a victorious king. Third, we see that he is the divine king. The divine king. Verse 6, your throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. Just pause there for a moment. This part of a verse taken at face value seems to be the psalmist addressing the king, which is what he's been doing all along, and saying to him, your throne, O God, king, I call you God. Your throne is forever. Well, but maybe we're misreading it just a bit. Maybe the author is just briefly switching his focus. He's speaking to the king, and then he kind of speaks to God, and then he speaks back to the king. Maybe, but not likely, especially in light of what's going to come in a moment. There's another option, though. Maybe the psalmist overcome with, with a, an exaltation of feelings at looking at the, the king dressed in his regalia and the, the glory of the wedding and all of its adornment in that day. Maybe he's just taken some poetic license and so he can't help but just spill over with some effusive language. Oh God, he says to the king. The problem is that Jewish believers tend to be pretty particular about the singleness of God, knowing that that decision would be life or death for themselves personally and for their nation. This was not a mistake that they made. I think the debate really is put to rest by the fact that this exact verse is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted by the author of Hebrews Hebrews 1.8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And do you know why the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45, verse 6? Because he is using this verse as one of many proofs that the Messiah who came had to be God. It settles the debate for us. The Lord Jesus, the King himself, had to be God himself. And he had to be God himself in order to be sufficient to do what the king came to do. And that was to win a bride. In order to pay for the sins of mankind, he had to offer an infinite sacrifice. How does one man die for the sins of another? How does one man pay the penalty for the punishment, for the judgment of another? Oh, one for one, I suppose could be good math, but one for many does not work unless that one is someone pretty special. And notice when he rules, what will it be like? Well, continue with me in verse 6. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. One day his reign on a new heavens and a new earth will be seen and experienced. If you know Christ personally, you'll be there. Tell you what, let's meet. Because it's going to be unbelievable. He will not tolerate evil. He will not brook wickedness. In fact, that's why he had to come as a savior. Otherwise, I don't know about you, but I couldn't be there. Unless in my wickedness he had died to save and rescue me. Then I could be in his land because he will allow no rebellion and in his rule there will be no need. There will be no desire. This is exactly why the king 
had to be divine. Peter says of him, he is the lamb unblemished and spotless from before the foundations of the world. Paul says that we are the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. How does God have blood? (laughs) Only if God takes on a body, which is what he did. The divine perfect king took a body, took on the body of an infant, in fact, and then he grew, and then he bled and he died. And he did it for us, the divine king. And now let's read the rest of verse 7. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. We had a problem at the beginning of verse 6 with the king being God. Now we have sort of a double problem by the time we get to the end of verse 7. Because we have one in the same person who is both called God in one verse, and in the very next verse, we are told, is then anointed by God. Well, which is it? The answer is yes. Christ alone was both God and was also anointed as king to be God. These were words of great mystery, I would argue, for centuries as the rabbis taught them, as good Jews read their scriptures, and they kind of scratched their heads and they say, well, it's a mystery to me exactly how it works, but I I think I know that God knows what he's doing. And so we'll just have to wait for the unveiling of the mystery. And now in Christ, it's been unfolded because he, the son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity is God indeed. And yet he was anointed by the Father, the God also, the first person of the Trinity from all eternity. Therefore God, your God, O King, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. It really is verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 45 that most clearly identify that Jesus is the most full and the most and and the final and the only representative who can really be spoken of entirely by Psalm 45. He's really the only person that this psalm ever could ultimately point to. Every other king was a shadow before him. The Israelites, by the way, unlike their ancient neighbors, did not believe in divine kings. They were smarter than that. They knew that their human kings came forth from a human mom and dad and didn't suddenly get adopted into, king, uh, into godness. But the king who would fulfill this would be the eternal king, just as David had been promised. One of the great mysteries of Scripture until the coming of Jesus Christ, until the incarnation that simply had to be taken by faith for many centuries until... It could be fulfilled. God becoming man is really the miracle of the ages. God becoming man is the need of every human in the human race. He has no equals. (laughs) He alone is the true source of joy. Now let's just read the rest of this section, verses 8 and 9, which is now saturated with this divine joy. 
All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. This is the divine king, and he is sweet to all of our senses, isn't he? Do you know Jesus like this? Do you? Is he sweet to your senses? For those who know him truly, he truly is. Here in the passage, speaking of the human king, who's just the beginning of a picture of the fullness of that king, he is surrounded by spices and music and nobility. Myrrh is a perfume that comes from a gum that is made by a tree of Arabia and is a very precious perfume. Cassia is a dried cinnamon blossom that is used as incense. Ophir, well, actually, we don't really know where Ophir was. The place is debated, but the gold of Ophir, ah, now that is legendary, and there is no doubt. This picture of the one who hated evil, but he is great joy because he became our sin. This picture of the one who owes us judgment, but rather he has grace poured upon his lips. This one who treads his enemies under his feet, but for now he has come in truth and humility and righteousness so that he might victoriously conquer our wills and we might say, oh Lord God, yes. Yes to you in every way. You alone are my peace and my hope and my king. This divine king, he is enough. Delight in him. Well, now the passage turns just a bit, and the balance of the psalm is going to have a new focus. Let's just now briefly turn to the people of the king. We will find them addressed in, in the person of the bride, but she will stand in the place of all of the people of God for all of the ages, as we know even under this covenant that we are called the bride of Christ, even as we sang, good job, even as we sang this morning. Here we have two things in verses 10 through 15, the call of his people and the privilege of his people. Let's read. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord, bow to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. Pause there for now. What is the call of his people? What is the call of his bride in this passage? The call of the bride is to forget her past and to find all of her identity in her king. Forget your people. Forget your past. That means to reckon that we no longer are now in Christ. If we have come to be married to him, we no longer are now what we once were. A wedding means the start of new priorities. Marriage means a commitment to a new 
allegiance. And the people of Christ are his before anything else on the face of the earth. And the call of Christ has always been as such. Whether it was in the first century for one who had grown up in Judaism, waiting for the coming of the Messiah, to leave behind now all the trappings of Judaism and see that everything that they had ever been taught by their forefathers, that all of the prophets and the law and the sacrifice system and the priesthood, that everything was but a foretaste of Christ in his fullness now that he has come, all of that was to be left behind and found in reality in him, not just shadow or whether it was a first century non-Jew, a barbarian, a pagan, a Roman, who had to forsake all of their multiplicity of gods, of stone and wood and sun and fire and sky and whatever else, and leave all of them behind to love their king. The call of Christ has always been the same, and it comes with a cost. It was the same in the Middle Ages if one came from Islam or from any other religion. And they had to relearn to know the very character of God because there were things that they had been taught that were just purely incorrect. And now that they have come to know that Christ is the full manifestation of the very character of God, God in the flesh, he is the one that they had to now look to for understanding real truth about God and real hope about who God was. So the bride is to forsake her people and her past and trust everything on him. Or for us today, the call of Christ is the same. Even if it just means turning away from our, our other trusts and our comforts, forget your people and your past. Even if it's just turning away from our money or our trust in it, our rank in society, our plans for the future, laying all of those at his feet and saying, Lord, I either put those behind me and forget them or else I bring them to you and leave them with you with empty hands and say, I will find my all in you because you are absolutely enough. We put it all in his hands and we learn that he truly is our Lord and he is good, good beyond our reckoning of him even. And we thrill to see what he can do in the life of one who puts everything with him. The baby came not to teach us a new way, not to divert our attentions, not to tell entertaining stories. He came to die to give us life. And that life is life itself. And it is worth putting everything else on the altar for him to have what he gives. Well, that's the call of the bride in verses 10 and 11. Now let's look at the privilege, the call of his people. Now the privilege of his people. Here we see really the glory of the bride in 12 to 14. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift the rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within, and her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions, who follow her will be brought to you. Now what we have here is the bride, the people of the king, have a new position. You, if you know Christ, have a new position because of your relationship with him. 
There is a nobility now that you have as a follower of Christ that is very sweet and very new. You have access to the king. There is a share, verse 13, a share in glory, it says. The king's daughter is all glorious within. I wanted to talk a lot about how he makes us glorious on the inside. Um, I think it actually means like within the walls. So, okay, I don't want to say that. But it's still true. There is a glory that is given to the people of God now that will come one day that we will see with our own eyes that we share in the glory that is due to him. We'll cast our crowns at his feet. We'll thank him for his goodness. We'll find in that day, verses 13 and 14, that we are now arrayed in splendor. Revelation chapter 19 speaks of the very bride of Christ, how she is given new clothes, fine linen, bright and clean. Don't you love just the, <laughs> just the efficiency of that phrase? Fine linen, bright and clean. We will wear as we stand with our king. There will be no shame to be found in that day because he will have been victorious over all. That will be a great day. And accompanied by attendants, the last part of 14, the virgins, her companions. At least in this new community, we will be found in a company of angels. Uh, a host of heaven's army and all of the saints, all of the believers in God down through the ages together with them. What a day that will be. But that's not all. That's not where the privilege of his people and its description ends. Now we're also brought home and we're given entrance and intimacy in the royal palace. Verse 15. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. Huh. Remember trip to Ethiopia? We made a 10-hour layover stop that we purposely planned in London because there's a couple cool things in London to see. Um, like the British Museum, uh, Buckingham Palace, um, Westminster Abbey. I mean, we had 10 hours, so like we could do it all. <laughs> we went to Buckingham Palace. I think we were there for about like 11 minutes. Um, we stood outside the gates and we just stared and oohed and awed. Here's the thing. If I'd have had, you know, 11 days, they would not have allowed me to walk up front and said, hi, Frank, and I'm here, and so I'm just going to cruise right in. I'm sorry, you're who? You don't just walk into the king's palace. Not just everybody is invited. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing, and they will enter into the king's palace. It's the select who are invited. And it's not just entrance into palace and royalty and luxury and all that glory. It's intimacy here that is the real picture. You already, if you know Christ, have a foretaste of being brought home. You already, if you know Christ, have a foretaste of the intimacy of what it will be like in that day to walk through the gates of the royal palace. 
in heaven. I have known times in my life that are so lonely that have literally marked my steps back to my door in desperation because I just wanted to be alone with God because he knows me so well and that's all I wanted. I have known times that are so rich in fellowship with other believers that through prayer together we have felt as though we knew each other better than words could even express. Why? Because of the intimacy of God in the midst of our fellowship and prayer together with Him. Both of those, whether entirely alone or surrounded in the sweetness, bathed in the fellowship of His presence, are because of the intimacy that He gives to His children today. And brothers and sisters, it's barely a foretaste of what it will be like to be with him. He came not merely to forgive our sins and to put up with us. He came to redeem us so he could adopt us, so he could draw us near, so he could bring us to his breast so that he can invite us into sweet fellowship because he knows your soul and he knows mine and words aren't even necessary sometimes with him. The glory of his people, the privilege of his people is to know him and that can never be taken away from you if you know Christ. Do you know him? If you do, nothing can take that away. Only he is enough, so abide in him. Finally, our passage closes with the legacy of being his people. The legacy of being his people. 16, the psalmist writing now to the king and his bride standing there pronouncing a blessing over them says, in the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. You know what is the legacy of being his people? The legacy of the union of the king and his bride is that they would lead their children after them to rule and reign as they have. Here is a blessing given to a king and to his wife to say to them, just as your fathers have been, have been on the throne before you, so your sons after you. Your children will be men and women of renown and influence. Okay, That's the worldly blessing. That's the earthly blessing given to this king and his bride. But for us, it's so much more than that. Because for us, the legacy of being his people is that the Lord and his bride, the church, us, we are to have true offspring. We are to have true children in the faith who are people of renown and influence. We carry a true report of good news, brothers and sisters, when we share the gospel that actually gives to people real life and nothing else on the face of the earth does that's our legacy 
we get to point people to the true Christ. There are many out there pointing people to other gods and many pointing to a Christ who is not the real Christ. But if we know him, we get to point people to Jesus Christ. And if they are willing, Christ says, whoever believes in me will never be disappointed. We don't hold out to people Jesus' claws, but we give to them the keeper of souls who is worthy of all worship, who actually has the power to save. He himself, the king, is leaving a legacy. He himself is doing his work. And yet he labors together with his people and through his people to do that work. And what is that work? If I had to capture it in one phrase in the middle of verse 16, there it is. What is his work? To make princes. That's what God is doing on the face of the earth today. He is making princes for his kingdom. And we get to be a part of that work. Those who come to Christ through our witness, those men and women whom we may disciple in, we may disciple in the faith, faith and we may invest in, these are leaders of the next generation. These are missionaries, some to grow, go cross-culture. Some witnesses in the workplaces and heralds, in the gospel, heralds of the gospel in spheres that, that you and I may never place foot in, even in our own culture. But our legacy as we walk with Jesus, our legacy that we get to be a part of with this king is seeing him make princes. That's where the psalm writer ends. And, and thinking of that, can you pause and consider how big of a blessing that is? In eternity, what will last? Any peace that you got to play in making princes, that will last forever. The question is, is anything else on the face of the earth, could anything else on the face of the earth ever be enough? That is enough. And that's what we get to do. The psalmist then finally closes with what is our ultimate joy. And that's the king's glory. The king himself and his glory is our ultimate joy. And it will never be forgotten. 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, the psalmist writes. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. By, by the writing of this psalm, the writer actually accomplishes the very thing that he wishes to accomplish in verse 17. What is that? He says to the king, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Guess what, sons of Korah? You did it. Here it is. Because Christ said this word will never pass away. And the glory of the king will now be remembered by this word through all generations. But that's just the seed. That's just the seed of the legacy of the king and his people. Because God's word, this glory, will come and take root and it will give birth in people's lives. 
And the peoples from all nations will stand before him one day in praise. And forever there shall be praise on account of his work, this good, victorious king. And on account of this person, this divine and righteous king. And he will have glory forever in making a people for himself. Ephesians chapter 1 says the phrase three times about you, if you know Christ, and about me, that we are now for the praise of the glory of his grace. So that in the, in the eternal eras, the angels will look at us and they'll go, ha, what a great God. To the praise of the glory of his grace. What a great king. Look at what he's done. Do you have any idea where these people came from? We who stumble and who betray and who believe lies and fall prey to it and make stupid choices. But he who brings us to return and who grants us whole forgiveness and who washes feet and who makes us sing, we have been forgiven. We will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. And as the angels sang to the shepherds on the hillside on that Christmas night of the glory of God in the highest, one day, one day again, angels will sing. They'll sing before a multitude from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and they will sing to the praise of the glory of his grace because of the work of the king to make a people for his name in renewed sinners like you and like me. It is all his grace. It is all his grace. It is all his grace. Will you say it with me? It is all his grace. Stand with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we rejoice in the fact that you kept your promise from ages past, from centuries and millennia before, promises and prophecies given that were fulfilled in letting the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, become a baby. Plans from before the foundations of the world from eternity past come to fruition in this child so that this king could win a bride for himself. We are so glad to be your people. We are so glad to be part of your legacy. We are so glad to walk in your train, and we so rejoice in what that baby means to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the sacrifice. We will gladly say that you are the divine king and the victorious king and the king of grace. It really is all your grace. Remind us of that often this day and this week. We praise you for it and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.